of you that demonstrate inner critic for us? I thank you. <laughs> I can be, I could take a whole evening doing that. <laughs> there's a reason why one writes certain things, and there's a reason why I happen to have written a book about the critic, because I know it quite well from my own experience over the years. And what I was going to say was, uh, having worked with people you know, a lot, as a, both as a therapist, as a coach, as a meditation teacher, all over the world, mostly in North America and Europe, some in India, um, that I see the, the, one of the greatest sources of pain is the way that we talk to ourselves. Uh, critical, mean, judgmental, belittling, deprecating uh, voice that is persistently on our case about our imperfections and relentless at pointing out our foibles, of which of course we're human, so we have lots of them. <laughs> it's called personality, <laughs> it's called some interesting character, it's called conditioning. So, and the, the inner critic comes in many voices, in many guises. Do people know what I'm talking about, the inner critic? Am I in the right planet? Okay, good, just. <coughs> so, and known by many different ways. Freud called it the superego. I use the word inner critic, the judge, tyrant, killjoy, the taskmaster. What are your names? Do you have any names for you on that little voice, on that large voice, those voices inside? Hmm? In the child? Oppressor. The oppressor. Right? Mom. Mom, yes, here we go. Dad, yes. My rabbi or my priest or somebody like that. What else? Judge. Judge. Monkey mind. Monkey mind. Somebody called the itsy bitsy shitty committee. <laughs> <laughs> One person said, "You know, it's like it's like I'm, I've got this room. It's like bad college roommate in that it's always on my case." <laughs> and then a the later on the course, someone said, "Well, it's more like it's a whole college dorm. It's like there's this full of these characters that mean." Some of them are like come as a coach, but some of them come as a tyrant. Some of them can't come as a you know. Who knows what? Sometimes I notice that there's like a silent mean mob that I don't uh, really notice is there until I start breathing loving kindness into my heart. Uh -huh. And then I feel the lift uh -huh. of the mean silent mob leave the room. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I can feel compassion for, you know, Donald Trump or whatever that, you know, mm. just the things, oh, doors open up, but it's like, mm. it's quiet first mm -hmm. until I like say, okay, bring some loving kindness in and then it's like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sometimes it's very. It's like I don't even know they're there until I like open my eyes in some way to them. Right, there. right. Well, they're, they're mostly, they're so familiar, we've lived with them for, you know, many, many decades. And so they're part of the hardwiring. We listen to it a lot. We give it a lot of authority. 
and the more that we listen to it, the more we believe it, the more authority we give it, the more we think it's true, the greater we suffer. And so uh, Dharma practice is to illuminate our experience. Right? We cultivate mindfulness to, to be more aware, to be more clear and insightful understanding about our experience, right? particularly that which causes harm. And until we look, we don't notice. Until we start paying attention, we might just think, well, that's just my mind. That's how everybody is. You know, I need to be hard on myself, otherwise I'll never get anything done. How would I get out of bed this morning if I didn't beat myself up for being lazy, for example? And how would I get to the meditation cushion if I didn't chastise myself for being such a slacker as a Buddhist or as a meditator or whatever? So, um, so I came to this practice young. Uh, I was very fortunate. Um, and I'll just share a little couple pieces from the book. Um, when I was about, uh, I think I was 18, 18 or 19, and um, this is from the introduction. In my late teens, I was a young man with a lot of rage. I was a punk rocker and anarchist in constant search of a target for my fury. The punk rock and anti-establishment movements in the political underground of London were perfect outlets for my anger. Mostly it was directed at the government, corporations, and justice. You could say they were easy targets. What I didn't understand was that I had unconsciously become the target of much of my own hatred. My mind was filled with self-flagellation, and through that murky lens I was never good enough or smart enough. That deficiency tune was a mantra that played over and over in my head. Every decision, every move was wrong, stupid, or hopeless from my inner critic's point of view. Sound familiar? My inner journey began when I stumbled upon, back then, in 1984, a pretty rare thing, a meditation center in the heart of London's run-down East End. The moment I walked into the center, I realized that people working there were onto something. They weren't on something, they were onto something. <laughs> there was a clarity, serenity, and purpose in their eyes, and the way they moved and talked. There was a quality that most people I was surrounded by lacked in spades. I didn't know quite what it was, but I wanted and needed it badly. And so it was there I was exposed to my first toolkit. However, this was no ordinary toolkit. It was a set of skills unlike any I'd been exposed to. It was a toolkit for the mind. Up to that moment, I'd never really thought of turning my attention inward. I'd never thought of looking at myself to see why I was unhappy, why I had so much mental anguish. I was too busy looking outward for someone or something to blame. But this turn inward was the orientation I was being invited to cultivate. Mindfulness meditation, I discovered, is a skill that gives you the awareness to see with focused clarity what is happening in your mind and body and experience. It gives you the ability to understand and work with all the thoughts and voices in your head. It helps you see what the real roots of suffering are and how to resolve the problems they cause. What I discovered was liberating more effective than any pill, philosophy, or other supposed panacea. And it worked much better than raging against the machine. Not that I stopped doing that, but you know, it's good to have both. You know, a range of skills. So, um, so what I want to talk about is just some, some threads of uh, uh, the critic and how we see it, how we understand it, how we relate to it, how we become uh, hoodwinked by it, and how to have some simple strategies to um, 
to work with it. Someone actually, I was just talking to Howie Cohen today, and he said a really great line from um, somebody. <laughs> I wish I'm going to blow this line right now. Um, so the good thing about having worked on your critic for a long time is you can have a good sense of humor about it. Because as Wavy Gregor says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny. <laughs> and uh, this person uh, who he was quoting, uh, she says, um, whatever, and she, this person I think is, a, is, a, is an artist, whatever pe whatever's people's point of view is about me, that is not my business. Whatever someone else's view about me is, is not my business. So, um, so how does the critic manifest? Right? So in, in the words that we use, it's an indicator, tyrant, taskmaster, manager, killjoy, itsy bitsy shitty committee, my favorite. Um, we see the different flavors. So, that it's you know, one of the some fundamental tendencies, uh, this need to be perfect, this need for perfectionism. The critic is never satisfied because nothing's ever perfect. How rarely do you ever do anything that's perfect? Any parents in the room? Has anybody per, per parented perfectly? Right. Perfect partner, perfect lover, perfect writer, perfect. There's no such thing as perfection. There's an imperfect, imperfect perfection in this life. But our critic is very happy to, uh, to assign us a very uh, high set of standards that are impossible to meet. So with, in, with perfectionism comes not being enough. And I'd say that's probably the collective mantra that the critic cultivates, a sense of deficiency. Not smart enough, not cute enough, not intelligent enough, not compassionate enough. You know, so the critic comes right into the door of the meditation center and says, not mindful enough. You know, banging heads on lamps, for instance. Not kind enough. Not insightful enough to see the outcome of this election. Not socially engaged enough to have made a difference in the election. And so think about what your not enough mantra is. Because right? I bet you have one. Right? Or a few. And certainly we've got some of those messages from conditioning, you know, from parents or otherwise, not smart enough, not cute enough, not... You know, in my case, not local enough, my parents are 6,000 miles away. <laughs> so another peculiarity of the critic that makes it very cruel is it has 20-20 insight. It will look back on all kinds of decisions and actions, maybe how you voted, for instance, or the actions you did in, in choice of work or housing or partner or whatever it is. We can look back and we can be very cruel about and, and uh, harsh about why we made certain decisions. And I have faith in human nature that we do the best we can whenever we can. And then, of course, five or ten years later, we can look back and go, well, 
guess that wasn't really the wisest thing to do. Yeah. Wisest person mm-hmm. turned out to be a sociopath or something. Yeah. I went into business with. Yeah. Easy to judge from, from this vantage point. Or the fundamental belief, I think, or the message that comes from the critic, it's not okay to be who you are. It's not okay to be the idiosyncratic, eccentric, quirky, lovable, weird and wonderful person that you are. Because we're all a little weird and wonderful. And we live in this sort of media, social media age where we're supposed to be you know, someone with glitter around them. You know, always having a great time on Facebook. My life's so great. Look at my friends. And we have a whole new bar of standards right, of how great my life should be on Instagram. I remember watching that very uh, uh, touching um, set of videos. I think it was a, um, of an Instagram model, a 21-year-old model. I remember this story? Young girl. I think she's Australian. And um, very popular, had hundreds of thousands or millions of likes, or however that works on Instagram. And it's and it, and she became an anorexic, putting forward forth this version of how she should be looked and how she should be liked. And you know, did it for some time, and then some something cracked, and she saw through the sham. And she started posting what she was really like when she wasn't doing the perfect Instagram photos, which was depressed, neurotic anxious, starving, and it was actually very refreshing to cut through some of that mirage of the perfect self. So people often say, well, you know, I can't get rid of my critic because how would I do my work? You know, I'm a lawyer, or I'm an educator, or I'm a nurse, and I need that critical faculty. I need to be responsive, I need to make quick decisions. So I always like to make clear there's a distinction between judgment that has a negative value-laden quality to it. The critic is essentially attacking our value and our worth as a human being, saying we're not good enough because we did something, said something, or didn't do something, didn't say something, we're therefore less of value, or worthless, or unworthy. But we can, you know, for example, we can look back and say this meditation, you know, how is your meditation? Right? If you had to assess your meditation, right? We can do that with a judgment, like, oh, that was pathetic. I was just asleep the whole time, and why bother coming? I may as well just have taken a nap, right? I'm just a useless meditator. Everybody else was great, and I was the only slacker in the room nodding off. There's at least two of you. Um, and, or we can go, oh, you know, a lot of thoughts, a lot of busyness, and, and a lot of sleepiness. It's just a simple discrimination. It's not value-laden. It's not making a judgment about your worth. It's just saying, oh, well, you know, some meditation's distracted, some meditation's focused. No big deal either way. So we're making that distinction between judging and discrimination, judging and evaluating which is important to, to bear in mind. So why do we do it? Why do we beat ourselves up? Why are we so harsh? 
Does it bring anybody any happiness? Does it actually make you a better person? Does it work? Or does it just keep creating more negative thoughts about ourselves? This is from um, Dwight Moody. I've had more trouble living with myself more than any other person I've ever known. We keep judging ourselves, right? When the Buddha was onto neuroplasticity, what we do frequently, that the mind becomes. If we judge, we become judgmental. If we judge a lot, we keep judging, and we become a judgmental person. So we want to ask ourselves, do we want to keep strengthening this habit that causes more judgment and more pain? Or do we want to find a different strategy? Or do we want to give it less attention and energy? Do we want to cultivate more kindness and forgiveness and self-compassion, which are much more healing and beneficial than any chastising can be? So the next time you're on your own, next time you're on your case about something, right, which might be in the next 20 minutes, um, or when you're driving home, or Notice what was the trigger. What allowed that to rate of thoughts to kind of start revving up? Because we, because understanding the judge, we need to understand its origin. We want to understand what triggers it. Often, what triggers it is vulnerability, is pain. So, when I ask the question, why do we have a critic? You know, the critic. Um, as early as Freud pointed out, was necessary part of our structure to help us find, to, to navigate the intensity of our, of our impulses and our reactions and our, and our powerful emotions and energy. As children, we have to somehow find some way to rein that in to fit into the family system. There was anger, sadness, whatever was unacceptable in the family, that had to be shut down because you would get, uh, uh, you would feel the impact of the loss of love and affection, which was, for a child, is, is equivalent to death. So we developed this very strong, self-imposed shaming mechanism. There's a wonderful book that I drew a lot of inspiration from in, the, in my work on the critical soul without shame by Byron Brown, teaching the diamond approach work, which I've studied in extensively, as is Eugene. Um, and the critic's role is, at a young age was to shame us, so to shut down those powerful impulses. What, the, which was fine at the time, but what happens is that mechanism gets locked in. And we find ourselves, 25 years after leaving home, we're still shaming ourselves for doing things that our parents might have uh, been <coughs> critical about. So the good news in terms of anything in our mind, heart, body, is we can transform, we can change. The Buddha said, if if this practice wasn't possible, I wouldn't tell you you it was was so. 
We can, through the doorway of mindfulness, through awareness, clarity, we can understand, see. I think it's the most pivotal quality we have, but it's not the only quality that's necessary for working with the critic. Because we often need to be a little more active and dynamic with it. I just had a thought, I realize I'm probably preaching to the choir here, because I imagine Eugene speaks a fair amount about this topic, is he? Or not? No? Okay, so you're not the choir. Mm-hmm. All right. So when our critic is, is, is on our case about something, what do you normally do? What do you do when your critic is judging you, shaming you? You say hi to it. You say hi to it? <laughs> That's friendly. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Hi. Hi, see you later. That's good. That's good. That's it strategy I'll talk about in a minute. So normally what we do is we start rationalizing. You know, say we forgot our friend's birthday, you know, or we showed up late in a very important meeting at work and we just honor, you know, we're giving ourselves a hard time. Just some very ordinary run of the mill thing that happens. Right? And our critic is on our case, oh, I can't believe you're late, I can't believe you forgot your friend's birthday, and it's your mother's birthday, and now you keep losing things and and it will go on our case uh, in a way that um, is shaming, and it will usually be a little repetitive. Have you noticed? It kind of goes. It doesn't say like, oh, you know, you know, really wasn't great to be late for that meeting. Let's figure out a constructive way we don't do that again. It's like, no, you're pathetic. You're a loser. You should be fired. I can't believe they hired you. You may as well go up and just put your head in the bucket of sand and go home. So it tends to take, go to extremes, and tends to be repetitive and uh, painful. I often say, imagine your best friend was your critic, and they just followed you around for a day, saying all, this, all the things that your critic said. From the moment you got up and you open your eyes and you go and look around your room, and you're like, God, it's such a mess in here, until you get to the you know, bathroom, oh, God, you look terrible. <laughs> You know, on we go, the critics on our case about things we haven't done and said. If our, if our friend was walking around and saying those things, how long would you put up with it for? Like, a minute? Ten seconds? Not very long. You'd be like, okay, back off. I don't need this at this time in the morning. I don't need to hear that app for the 47th time today. Thank you very much. We'd be really clear, for the most part, hopefully. But with this voice inside, we let it go on and on and on and beat us down. You know, and if we do that long enough, over enough years, it has a lot of power and weight. It's depressive. It's the number one cause of depression, personally. So when, we, when, when, when it's on our case, we get defensive and we try to rationalize. No, no, I'm really not a bad person. Yes, I was late, but you know, I was kind to that homeless person on the street and I was nice to my husband. Da, 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 da. So we immediately start defending ourselves in a way that we've already lost the battle because we've already given the critic authority to have any say over our value or not. As soon as you start having a conversation with the critic in that way where you're trying to justify yourself or rationalize yourself. You've given the critic authority. And then one of the main things that's important to see is how much authority we've already given to it. Because the critic, 
There's one person I was working with on a retreat, uh, an actor who, you know, some professions lend themselves to more critics than others. Um, uh, he was walking down the hill one day in Spirit Rock and was on his case about something. And he had this insight into the critics. He said, oh, it's just a bunch of words. It's just a na 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 this, not good enough, that na 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 It's just words that we give attention to, priority to, preference to, and we give authority to. As if the critic has objective truth. So this is a workshop, which we're not going to do today because we don't have time, but when I make workshops, I'll have you write down your list of top ten judgments. Always a fun thing to do. And then I have you share them with other people, which is first brings about you know, a sprint to the door. And the reason I do that is because, well, two reasons. One, when we, when we read rather than just listen to the cacophony in our heads, we actually bring a more objective analysis. We might say to ourselves quietly, oh, you're pathetic, you're never going to get anywhere, you're just, no one's going to love you. If we write that down and we read it and we bring in discriminating awareness, we see that the, how out of whack often those ideas are. And then when we share them with others, it'd be a fun project to do when you go home, with your significant other or housemate or whatever, you see that actually we're mostly carrying around the same thoughts. We carry around so much of the same stuff, same fears, same same values, and also the same judgments. You see, it's just a conditioned phenomenon, like so much of other of our mental suffering. This is from Robert Bly. <clears throat> In case you did anything that happens, the other reason I like to share the how people share the judgments is we often think we're the only one. This is a quirky thing of human nature. When we're suffering, we think, I'm the only one who has this particular plague. Everybody else seems really happy, except me. I'm the only one who's kind of on my case. This is from Robert Blind, called People Like Us. There are more like us all over the world, confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up, and people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself. The wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night, you dial it, it rings just in time to save the house. And the second story man gets the wrong address and he's lonely. And gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives and he's lonely and they talk. And the thief goes back to college and even in graduate school you wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor and you find yourself. It's like life. We bumble and stumble into this great catastrophe from one mistake to another. And that's, that's called being human. But from our critics' point of view, it's not good enough, quick enough, smart enough, you, know, you name it. So some, some simple tools. So I, I have this uh, frame in the, in, in the book called the Critic Toolkit, which I was alluding to a little in the beginning chapter. And they're just simple strategies some of which you know and do, some of which you may not be so familiar. And I'll just touch on a few um, as pointers. And as I mentioned, the, the, the fundamental s- s- tool we have is mindfulness, is awareness. 
Without awareness, no hope. Without awareness, we're not going to see and discriminate between our thoughts and our judgments. We're not even going to notice the judgments. We're just going to think that's part of how life is. I mean, it's one of our first insights, isn't it? When we meditate, God, I think all the time. This meditation must make me think a lot. No, so you think like that all the time. So with mindfulness, we recognize, we can name the judgments. It's really important to isolate the, 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 the critic out from all the other thoughts. To really be clear when a judgment's happening versus when you're just thinking and meandering and ruminating. It can be helpful to name it. Oh, judging. And now I'm judging myself for judging. Now I'm judging the judgments for judging myself. But the naming is helpful because it's oh, judging. When I was on uh, long retreats with Joseph, he would have me count my judgments. This gets very laborious. <laughs> Nothing else to do on retreats, so well, let's count my judgment. 273, 489, 763. Yeah, at a certain point it gets really silly and you find it amusing because it's like, who cares you know, after the 429th one? So writing them down, you know, writing down your judgments. What are your judgments? And sometimes it's just a sort of thick pea soup in the back of your head that and often the judge doesn't, as you were alluding to, that, that, that sometimes the judge isn't, doesn't come through words, it comes through uh, emotion, it comes through energy, it comes through just a felt sense. We, you know, we, we've done something wrong or we've said something hurtful or we, you know, we've, you know, we've messed something up and we feel this heaviness, this foggy brain, this kind of like we're walking through molasses. And in those times, sometimes I'll ask myself, you know, what's going on here? There's something going on. I, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't catch the thought that triggered this whole heavy, dull state. And the thought might have been, oh, right, that's a thought. I, I was really mean on that phone call yesterday with my brother. Oh, and I'm thinking that I'm really a bad person for doing that, even though he was attacking me. And maybe I wasn't mean, but maybe I was just you know, being fierce. So when I isolate the thought, then it helps unpack some of that emotional, energetic blah. So a practice that I really, I think, is highly important both for anybody in this, in, this, in this tradition, but also particularly with the critic, is the loving-kindness practice. Particularly because the loving-kindness practice, the meta-practice, is using the same mental processes. Right? The Buddha called, framed the meta-practice in one sutta as a replacement practice, a replacing practice. As in you're replacing negative habitual thought with a thought of loving kindness. Like, may you be well, may I be happy, may all beings be safe. So we're using that same mental process, right? You know, so the judge is using the, 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 the neural pathway of words. And with meta, we're using the same neural pathways of words and intentions. So every time you notice you're on your case about something, oh, you know, I'm a terrible meditator, I missed meditation for the 29th day this month, and may I be happy. And, yeah, but you kick the dog all the time, and may I be peaceful. 
and look at you, just a scruff, and may I be peaceful. And you're never going to get your shit together, and may I be happy. And you just keep, it's almost like neutralizing the critic with a kind statement. It's actually a good reminder to practice metta each time you notice this old reflexive mental habit. The, the shift that was very key for me in my, in my practice, especially with the critic, was I was sitting in meditation one day, I was in, living on a farm in the community, Buddhist community. And I forget what had happened, but I was really, the critic was just on my case about, some, about a lot of things. And, I, and, and instead of, normally we're aligned with our critics, so we're looking at it from its point of view rather than from the receiver's point of view, as in us, who's being shouted at, being attacked. And so I shifted the frame to feeling what it was like to feel the judge, judgments land in my heart. And it's incredibly painful. In the same way that it is when someone else attacks us, right? It, it hurts. And so it's really helpful if you can feel what it's like to talk, to, when, you, when you're being mean, feel what it's like to talk, to, to, to experience that. <coughs> To not be aligned with the mind and the harshness, but to be aligned with, with, the, with the heart. And what is it? What's the impact? Because something, something shifted when I, when I fully got how painful it was to be so mean and harsh. Something broke in that loyalty to the critic. We're very loyal to our critics. Because they have served a purpose. They had a certain self-protective place. And now they've outlived their, their usefulness, their self-identity. So for me, the most one of the most important strategies is humor. So on retreats, I, I would I'd imagine my judge of this big English wig, but they still wear it. I was actually teaching at Spirit Rock on Halloween. I was trying to desperately get a hold of a wig because I was talking about the critic. Couldn't find one. Um, and I and I pretend and I was on retreat now, and I imagine my my judge going bad meditator, <laughs> gavel, wrong, <laughs> bad practice. So, um, so I've learned to have a lot of playfulness with my critic, a lot of humor, a lot of, um, you know, just as you were saying, like, invite the critic in for tea, you know, thank you for your opinion. Oh, anything else you'd like to remind me about that I've forgotten? Yes, I'm the worst meditator in the world. You're right, Glenn. Thank you for pointing it out. Now I know. And I'm not going to get my life together? Fantastic. Great. Glad I know. Glad you, glad you got 20-20 foresight as well as hindsight. So I, I find sarcasm, humor, playfulness, lightness. Like Because if, if we can find the humor, if we can find the, the joke in it, or, this, or this, the absurdity of it, the silliness of it, then there's some disidentification, right? So mindfulness brings disidentification, where there's spaciousness around something. And humor does the same thing. To see if, you know, and often I'll just, you know, do it, be a Tai Chi move. Oh, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view. It's very interesting. Now go bother somebody else. Because it is a point of view, it is an opinion. And it's useful to remind yourself, thank you for your opinion about you know, whether I'm lovable 
or whether I'm going to amount to something. Thank you for your point of view. Very interesting. Actually, I'm not that interested. See you later. So, I think the... Um, one of the, the, f- the ways that you can begin to feel the critic as having less impact is, um, is you become disinterested. In the same way that as we, the, the more we meditate, the less thoughts become that interesting. And we still get pulled into them, of course, but they're less seductive, they're less alluring because we been down those thought trains 5,000 times and to say, oh, I don't that's not so interesting. I'd rather actually be abide in awareness in the present, much more satisfying. So, so you know, the, the, the critic may not go away. It may, it may diminish over time when we work with it. But the point just was with thoughts, it's not whether the thoughts go away or not, it's whether we find peace or freedom in relationship to them. Which means we find spaciousness, we find disinterest, we find disengagement, we find compassion, (coughs) we find self-love. So I want to read a poem from Marie Marie Howe, one of the American poets. Jews had to work with a lot of inner difficulty. And she's writing uh, kind of a letter to her uh, brother Johnny, who died of AIDS at 28, called What the Living Do. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes are piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again, the skies are deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in the air and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call. A kiss, a letter, we want more and more of it. But there are moments when, walking, I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face and unbuttoned coat, that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. There are moments, walking, when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and then gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face and unbuttoned coat, and I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. So when we do our work, we have those moments, right? as harsh and as hard and as critical as we can be to ourselves. 
we can also find that place where we find that cherishing, that love, that unconditional acceptance. We, we take ourselves for whatever we are in all of our messy brokenness. And we say, welcome. We say, sit here. I love you. This is it. This is who we are. This is, there's nothing else. There's, there's no, you know, let go of the self-improvement trance and radically welcome who you are here in all our messiness. Right? This is the possibility that practice offers. And this is certainly the possibility that uh, I think is more accessible as we work with this part of the mind, the, the self-judging mind that um, inhibits meeting that kind of vulnerability that allows the door of love to open. have to find a way to not align with the critic so we can feel you know, the fullness of our humanness, the, the range, the, you know, I, I had this very difficult day today, I had no idea why, maybe because of the election, I had a lot of fear, a lot of terror actually, and um, in my nervous system, and uh, it was just a very difficult day because of that, everything was colored through fear and through um, yeah, through, through terror. And, um, and I was driving in, I was uh, talking to Eugene on the phone actually, and anyway, so I was processing that experience, trying to just understand, what is this fear, what is this terror? And then, and then just being with that, I, also, I noticed that I was able to get to the vulnerability. And just the vulnerability of being human and not knowing, sometimes we, have, we touch these very painful places in ourselves. And the vulnerability allows the heart to open. It says, oh, oh, it's like, oh, sweetheart, this, this, is, this is hard, this is painful. And, and then the, the vulnerability allows the love, the love melts, the, 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 harsh, the hardness around the, the pain. So, in this last chapter, um, I talk about, uh, it's called A Life Beyond the Critic. It's a quote from Henry Miller. He says, whatever I do is done, Henry Miller, the writer, and then later painter, however, whatever I do is done out of sheer joy. I drop my fruits like a ripe tree. What the general reader or the critic makes of them is not my concern. Whatever I do is done out of sheer joy. What would life be like if you were no longer persecuted by the critical voices in your head and lived your life as Henry Miller describes, doing things out of sheer joy and concerned about the critic? Imagine you'd be walking around with a 60-pound backpack and suddenly you put that weight down. How would that feel? Like an incredible relief, a great lightening of the load. This is how it can feel to be free from the critic. The title of Milan Kundera's book, the unbearable lightness of being has always struck me as a great expression for what happens when the burden of self-judgment is lifted. Life without the critic does have a lightness to it, a sense of ease, playfulness, and inner peace. When I encounter people who are freed from the millstone of the critic, it is as if they've gotten a get-out-of-jail-free card in the Monopoly game. They get to play an easier hand in life. 
They're not caught up in self-recrimination, second-guessing, and fixating on their problems or faults. They view mistakes as learning opportunities, can laugh at their foibles, and smile when they can't find their car keys. There's a lot of references to me losing my car keys in this book, <laughs> especially when I'm driving to Spirit Rock to give a Dharma talk. And my way of dealing with that is, oh, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. They seem to be optimists, viewing others with appreciative eyes. They recover easily from setbacks. They look at the world with the attitude that the glass is half full. The glass half empty is simply not an option. So, um, you know, I share these words. I share these words here. I share these words in the book as, uh, as an invitation for you to, to look at this theme, to look at this pan, to look at this mental habit and to, uh, to wake up to it. And the more we wake up to it, the more we begin to implement strategies, tools, techniques, practices, wherever and however you glean them, and there's certainly many in the book, then um, uh, you will find more space, you will find more peace, you will find more well-being and self-love. Having walked this path for a long time, long time I can say that that's true. Is my critic disappeared? No, but it certainly has way less impact than it did have. And certainly much more access to a much truer understanding of who I am uh, in my essence. So thank you everybody for your listening. I would love to take questions. We maybe have, I don't know, we do like a... We're out of time. Yeah, we're out of time. So I'll, I'm, I'm happy to stay behind, I'm happy to sign books, um, and um, I do do longer workshops. I think I'm doing a day long at Spare Rock on the Critic in the, in the winter, um, and um, it's just lovely to be here. Thank you, everybody. Nice to see you.
this this thing that goes off because it doesn't go off. So it goes the other way. So just but then it's such off on the side probably. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.